Following a therapy session in the spring of 1959, Sylvia Plath wrote in her journal, got out some deep things with Dr. Boycher, facing dark and terrible things, those dreams of deformity and death. If I really think I killed and castrated my father, may all my dreams of deformed and tortured people be my guilty visions of him or fears of punishment for me, and how to lay them to stop them operating through the rest of my life. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about the poem Electra on Azalea Path by Sylvia Plath. This poem was written in March of 1959, following Plath's first visit to her father's grave. Otto Plath had died long before, in November of 1940. When his widow, Aurelia Plath, broke the news to her daughter, the eight-year-old Sylvia replied, I am never talking to God again. Now, given the attention that dead fathers receive in the work of Plath, it may come as some surprise that she took this long to visit her father's grave, almost 19 years. A curious fact that I think this poem addresses. Electra on Azalea Path has been described by Jahan Ramazani as the poet's first elegy for her father. Plath had in fact written about her father's death before in early poems like Lament. That poem begins, The sting of bees took away my father, who walked in a swarming shroud of wings and scorned the tick of the falling weather. Now, the narrator of this poem also refers to bees, and borrowing the stilts of an old tragedy, casts herself as an Electra. Just as the Electra of the Oresteia mourned for her murdered father Agamemnon, the narrator of our poem will mourn for hers, placing herself in a mythical, epic frame proportionally appropriate to the scale of her grief. It's a really interesting poem for all sorts of reasons. It's a kind of node of Plathian imagery and themes. Uh, first and foremost, it's pretty obviously a dead father poem, which, like others we've talked about on the podcast, Full Fathom 5 and The Colossus, surrounds a lost patriarch with sea imagery and the ruins of myth. The poem talks explicitly about suicide and carries a suggestion of her later aerial poems in its references to bees and wintering. The poem's classical allusions are illustrative of Plath's time at Cambridge, studying the classics, the likes of Sophocles and Aeschylus, uh, and she was also thinking of the Electra complex, the psychoanalytical term derived from Freud, but coined by his collaborator Carl Jung. Freud, in fact, rejected the term. In December of 1958, Plath had read Freud's Mourning and Melancholia, and also begun regular therapy sessions with Dr. Ruth Boitcher, who Plath had first met following her suicide attempt of year, a few years before in 1953. It is in this psychoanalytical association that the poem Electra on Azalea Path has a part to play in controversial readings of the poet, readings of Plath as obsessive, neurotic, and even quasi-incestual. Uh, pathography is the term used by Heather Clark to describe these readings. Uh, Clark writes, What began in the first Plath biography by Edward Boucher as Plath's obsession with her dead father became by Anne Stevenson's bitter fame a curse. 
Uh, one of Platt's boyfriends, Gordon Lameyer, encouraged these kinds of readings by saying the root cause of her nervous breakdown was her fixated Electra complex. Apparently, Plath came to the realization that her father's death when she was eight years old did not allow her to outgrow this natural Electra complex. These are the kind of statements that encourage those pathographies Clark is referring to. And at first glance, a poem like Electra on Azalea Path supports them too, presenting a daughter symbiotically dependent on her dead father, uh, going as far as to join him in his final bed. The day you died, I went into the dirt, is the poem's opening line. However, as Jahan Ramazani says, despite the Electra complex that critics have persisted in citing, Plath's ambivalent descriptions of her father indicate that this love was always laced with hostility. Indeed, she sometimes uses the Electra complex to mute guilt over patricidal anger. The poem also presents Plath at a stylistic hinge, a period of rapid development which ultimately led to this poem falling by the wayside. She was initially pleased with it, saying that it had goodnesses, but within weeks Plath changed her mind, writing on the 23rd of April that it was too forced and rhetorical. Her dislike of the poem meant that she didn't include it in her first collection, The Colossus. Linda Wagner-Martin writes, How Plath could have thought it unfinished is a mystery, especially when she included a much milder pastiche, The Beekeeper's Daughter, which uses some of the same imagery to tell much the same story, but more obliquely. The poem appeared in print in the Hudson Review in 1960, but I don't think it was collected in a work of Plath's until the 1981 collected poem, so almost 20 years after Plath had died. As usual, for these poetry episodes, I will go through the poem line by line, sharing some research, some critical commentary, some of my own interpretations. Uh, And between each stanza, I will be joined by my special guest for today's episode, Peter K. Steinberg. Peter is a leading figure in Plath studies. He has written an account of Plath's life in the Great Writers series, co-authored These Ghostly Archives, which you may remember from my interview with its other author, Gail Crowther, Peter is also the co-editor, along with Karen V. Kukiel, of the two-volume Letters of Sylvia Plath and the editor of the forthcoming Complete Prose of Sylvia Plath, which is due out next year. Peter also runs Sylvia Plath Info, which is a tremendous resource for fans and scholars of Plath. Every episode I've made on Plath has depended on Peter's site in uh, one way or another, so I'm really thrilled to be joined by him, not just for today's episode, but for the next podcast too, which will be on Plath's later poem, The Swarm. And after that, I will also have an extended interview with Peter where we talk more about his work, his upcoming work, and his history with Plath. But to start us off for today, I asked him why he'd chosen to talk about Electra on Azalea Path. Uh, I wanted to talk about this poem because it combines, uh, it, it sort of it came out of the, the lived experience of Plath visiting father's grave in March of 1959. And, and it's always fascinated me that journal entry that she wrote on the 9th of March, and then very shortly thereafterwards, it, it sort of, it had a very short gestation period. Uh, because by the 20th of March, 1959, she had written a lecture on Azalea Path. And um, then there was a third instance of it appearing in her writing. She sort of revised the scene in the bell jar. So it, it has all these 
things going for it where you can read it across several different genres. And one of the other things that I was particularly, that, that particularly interests me about this is that well, I used to live in Winthrop and I used to give tours to people of Plath sites. And this particular part of the tour was always the most interesting for people because we would we would walk in the footsteps of the journal entry and then you seamlessly enter the poem and at the same time you cross the boundary into the, the bell jar and it has this really sort of magical um, magical way of becoming a very very real thing um, and, and so that that's why I picked the poem. So here is the first stanza of Electra on Azalea Path. I'll read through it all in one go, and then we'll go through it line by line. The day you died, I went into the dirt, into the lightless hibernaculum, where bees striped black and gold sleep out the blizzard, like hieratic stones, and the ground is hard. It was good for twenty years, that wintering, as if you had never existed, as if I came godfathered into the world from my mother's belly. Her wide bed wore the stain of divinity. I had nothing to do with guilt or anything when I wormed back under my mother's heart. So the first line get, kicks us off with this almost monosyllabic, uh, iambic rhythm. The day you died, I went into the dirt. Um, very similar to the, the, the last line of the poem, it was my love that did us both to death. It probably didn't sound like there was much rhyme in that, but... The poem does actually have a rhyme scheme. It has five stanzas. Uh, the odd stanzas are ten lines long, and the even ones, the two even ones, are eight. The uh, ten-line rhyme scheme goes A, B, C, C, D, B, E, E, D, A, and the eight-line stanza goes A, B, B, C, D, D, C, A. We'll come back to the rhyme in detail a bit later on, but just to uh, to give you a sense of how that sounds, because I don't think you'll have picked up on it on that read-through, they are slant rhymes. The rhyme is, is muffled, a little like a, a Wilfred Owen poem. Um, so you have blizzard, hard, wintering, thing, divinity, belly, came, lum from hibernaculum, dirt, and heart. So it's a very mild sort of rhymes, but there is a scheme there nonetheless. Uh, the first line declares that when you died, I died too. I went into the dirt signaling that there is some kind of symbiosis between daughter and father. Immediately, something seems very wrong. Uh, she announces in the first line that she, she went into the dirt, she died, and yet she's talking to us. So, that, so we straight away we have this idea of a, a kind of split self. Part of her has died and gone into the dirt. Part of her has remained. Already, Plath has made the loss seem insurmountably traumatic causing this division of self, this impossible division of self. She's dead, but she's not dead. Uh, you'll notice throughout the poem, there is the I, the speaker, a you, the father, and then the mother, who is really not part of this conversation. She's almost like a third party. Uh, hibernaculum. So this is uh, a word meaning hibernating habitat. Uh, a tent for winter quarters is the definition I found. This is a word that shows the influence of Otto Plath, Sylvia's father's writing on bees. He wrote a book called Bumblebees and Their Ways, and hibernaculum is a word used for the habitat in which uh, bees would hibernate. Plath often borrowed uh, vocabulary from uh, her father's writings. 
Ronald Heyman has written, Her father took great pride in the magical-seeming power he had over bees. They never stung him when he caught them. If Sylvia made her memories of him into a myth, it was he who almost deliberately started the mythicizing process. That quote stuck out to me because Plath's successful mythicizing, as Heyman says, or mythologizing of herself as subject matter is what has led to a lot of the writing Heather Clark has characterised as pathography, including the writing of Heyman, who begins a chapter in his own book on Plath as follows. Sylvia Plath was eight when her father died, but the seeds of her neuroses had already been planted. Now, Plath wanted to be a great poet and knew that a great poet wrote about universal themes. She didn't set out to write a kind of versified diary or mood board. She tried to access those universal themes, love, death and war, uh, through personal material. Although later on in this poem, the narrator appears to be saying, I borrow the stilts of an old tragedy to address my personal loss, the reverse is also true. She's borrowing the stilts of a personal loss to address an old tragedy. Plath knew when she had good subject matter. When she writes in her journal entry about her father's grave, it is good to have the place in mind. I don't think she just means it's nice to have finally visited or it's, it's really nice to know it's there. I think she also means it's good to have that material. This will be uh, fruitful for my writing. Where bees striped black and gold sleep out the blizzard like hieratic stones and the ground is hard. So the bees, uh, waiting for spring, waiting to come out of their hibernaculum, striped black and gold like coin, like buried treasure. Hieratic um, refers to hieroglyphs, ancient Egyptian cursive often found on stone tablets. So the bees are like stones imprinted with the words of their queen, perhaps, or, the, or their their own particular language. It's interesting that because when Plath writes about dead fathers or lost fathers, there is often this melding of real figure and and father muse, a kind of literary, literary father muse. There is a sense that he's actually built out of words. Uh, in Full Fathom 5, you might remember the bit that describes the archaic trenched lines of the uh, sea father's face, simultaneously sounding like wrinkles on the ancient face of a, of a god, but archaic trenched lines also sounds like, uh, you know, old language, like, like lines from an old play. Here the bees are like hieratic stones, a kind of buried language, a world of writing the poet feels cut off from. And also, given that this hieratic language was written on, on stone tablets, all of the bees are almost like little graves of themselves, little models of the, uh, the larger grave above them. It was good for 20 years, that wintering. So 20 years, roughly the time between uh, Otto Plath's death and this visit to the grave. Uh, wintering as if you had never existed. Now, there's two ways of reading that. Um, that wintering is almost like that, that weathering. We weathered the storm for 20 years and finally, finally have surfaced. But the following line, as if you had never existed, almost makes wintering act on the memory of her father. It, it, it Wintering out the memory of the father, almost like whiting it out. She's literally buried her head in the sand or the ground and erased the memory of her father. She has lived, lived as if she has never had one. As if I came godfathered into the world from my mother's belly. The poet imagines herself immaculately conceived, a way of explaining the physical lack of a father who nevertheless has a great symbolic significance, who looms large in her life, although he is immaterial. 
Her wide bed wore the stain of divinity. This is a classically uh, Plathian image of sordid whiteness. Uh, this, this recurs again and again throughout Plath. We've seen it on, on previous podcasts. Hospital whitenesses, the uh, seminal fluid on the sheets in a birthday present in particular, semen stiffening to history. It's a really complex line, this, I think, uh, suggesting, first of all, maybe on the most superficial level, a, a kind of poignant loneliness of her widowed mother. Uh, I don't think this, this poem is very sympathetic to the mother figure, but um, the wide bed does, does sort of suggest she's, she's quite lonely in it. It's wide because there's only one person who sleeps in it. Um, but then that is somewhat undercut by the immediate suggestion of hypocrisy, the stain of divinity. I think we are meant to be thinking of, of white stains. Um, and on the back of that wintering, that kind of whiting out of the memory of the father, it almost feels like a, like a fable, um, a, a lie of, about, about a sort of immaculate conception. I think we're beginning to get a sense of a story told to a child, a mythology of this lost father which has actually repressed meaningful grief and replaced it with a, with a kind of fairy tale that the, the narrator is quite traumatically growing out of now. Stain of Divinity, it also, it also carries that charge of, of sort of squalid purity. The, the family home is artificial, sexless, and I think that's kind of confirmed in the combination of naivety and decay we hear in the final lines of this stanza. I had nothing to do with guilt or anything when I wormed back under my mother's heart. Um, over the course of this stanza, the narrator has imagined themselves split in two, as I said at the start. One self is buried with the father in the first line, and now in this last line, the other is buried under the mother's heart. I think this dramatises the impossible situation Judith Kroll has described uh, Plath as being in. The self that she had defined through her deep attachment to her father continued to press its claims without any possibility of satisfaction or development. So it's still kind of underground, arrested. With the wormed back under, we return to burrowing insects or grubs. We had the bees at the beginning, and now it's a worm. Uh, the worm, of course, carries the hint of something parasitical. There's the association with death, unlike the bees, which are usually um, imagined as, as a kind of ideal society, a matriarchal society, as it happens. The final line could be read several ways, a bit like the stain of divinity. Under my mother's heart sounds a little like a return to, a, to the womb, but also like another way of saying under my mother's influence or under her thumb, controlled by her feelings as opposed to having my own, under her heart. It's, it's like another version of the bees imprinted by the father's grave. The narrator is imagining herself under the mother's heart, under her feelings and imprinted by those. Perhaps there's also a sense of under my mother's heart leading to and behind her back, given that she's thinking of her, of her father buried, hiding under her mother's heart, but secretly more obedient and loyal uh, to the memory of the deceased parent than to the blood of the living one. Either way, in both of these burials, the, the narrator is repressed. She's unable to express herself fully under the influence of a dead father in one case and a living parent in the other. Freud's Mourning and Melancholia describes the latter, melancholia, as a symptom of not being able to healthily perform the, the former, the mourning. Melancholia is a frustrated kind of grief. Plath found in it an almost exact description of my feelings and reasons for suicide, a transferred, murderous impulse from my mother onto myself. 
In several ways, Dr. Ruth Beutcher was instrumental in the formation of this poem. Her therapeutic sessions coincided with Platt's reading of Freud. Uh, she also encouraged her patient to visit her father's grave, so gave us the, the kind of originating incident for this poem. And most notoriously, she gave Plath permission to hate her mother. My, um, my general, I don't have a very high opinion of Dr. Boischer. And uh, yeah, I feel like, uh, because she, at the time she was treating Plath, she was not a medical doctor. Uh, she was, I think, still in training. And I'm not sure that she ever actually qualified to be a doctor, but I'm not, I mean, she must have because they call her Dr. Boischer. But um, I remember there was something I read that indicated that she was not like a full-on uh, psychiatric psychologist sort of doctor. And, and so my opinion about her has always been fairly critical because I don't think I, I think Plath manipulated her, first of all, in, in order to sort of get out of uh, McLean um, because they became friends. And obviously there's a, it's a troublesome relationship because, you know, we have those late letters where Plath is signing in love, um, which I have a real issue. It's like as the elder person in the relationship, Dr. Boyser should have established some clearer boundaries than she did. They would meet at local restaurants and they would go out and do this and that and the other. And that's just not really professional. And, and so like all of these, all of these issues that sort of developed with Plath having mommy issues or daddy issues or whatever, they didn't exist before Dr. Boyce treated Plath at McLean Hospital. That's not to say they weren't there or, or they were hidden, but Dr. Boischer certainly drew them out, and I think Plath kind of ran with it. Now onto the second stanza of Electra on Azalea Path. Small as a doll in my dress of innocence, I lay dreaming your epic, image by image. Nobody died or withered on that stage. Everything took place in a durable whiteness. The day I woke, I woke on Churchyard Hill. I found your name, I found your bones and all, enlisted in a cramped necropolis, your speckled stone askew, by an iron fence. So for these eight line stanzas, two and four, the rhyme scheme is slightly different. It goes A, B, B, C, D, D, C, A. So image and stage, innocence, fence, whiteness, necropolis, hill and all. Small as a doll in my dress of innocence. Uh, so dress reminding us of the wide bed that wore the stain of divinity. It's a guise, it's a dress. And since she describes herself as a doll, we have the impression of her being inanimate. This is a guise or a dress that has been put on her by somebody else, presumably the mother. Scale is very important to keep in mind in this poem. Later, the narrator will borrow the stilts of an old tragedy in an effort to express her loss, to put it on a, on a higher scale. Her repression of it, as detailed in the first stanza, has made her small as a doll. Small and ineffectual as a doll. I lay dreaming your epic image by image. Images, so although we are being made to think of theatre, these are images, they're stationary, uh, tableau as opposed to action. Nobody died or withered on that stage. Everything took place in a durable whiteness. There's that whiteness again, we're back to the wintering, the blizzard that has preserved her father in this sort of state of living death. Nobody died, so uh, nobody was mourned. Not accepting that he is dead paradoxically constitutes an erasure of the father. 
The day I woke, I woke on Churchyard Hill. Now the stanza changes. When, as soon as the narrator awakes, we go into what Joe Gill has called documentary mode, uh, as opposed to the figurative sort of dreaminess or nightmarish dreaminess we've heard so far. After the day I woke, it's all quite factual. Churchyard Hill, I mean, I say factual. I, I couldn't find any reference to there being a real Churchyard Hill. The cemetery is on a road called River Road, and it's not even really a hill. So I wonder where Churchyard Hill comes from. I wondered if it was a reference to Cemetery Hill, where part of the Battle of Gettysburg took place. Um, before the battle, it had already housed a cemetery called Evergreen Cemetery. And uh, I wonder if Plath wanted a military resonance. She is comparing this father with a uh, mythical warrior, Agamemnon. So I wonder if we're moving from the history of the Greeks and Trojans to American history, the history of the Civil War. We get a military resonance bit a few lines later it with enlisted in a cramped necropolis, enlisted like piles of war dead. I found your name, I found your bones and all. Bones and all seems to echo the, the conversational naivety of the previous stanza. Nothing to do with guilt or anything, and now bones and all. Enlisted in a cramped necropolis, your speckled stone askew by an iron fence. Cramped necropolis, so more claustrophobia. The sense of a really paltry setting. She, she has to find his name. Um, it's as if... Despite the, the apparent importance of the father figure, his name is just one amongst thousands in this cramped necropolis. Necropolis with that kind of antique ring, almost like he is just a name on a tribute to the war dead from some ancient battle. Now, I can't resist mentioning at this point, uh, on the same day as Plath records finishing Electra on Azalea Path, she also mentions that she has finished reading the Tolkien trilogy, as she calls it, Lord of the Rings, which she considered a triumph, saying, I don't know when I have been so moved. Is there a possibility that a little bit of Lord of the Rings found its way into Plath's own miniature epic? The patriarch, bear with me, in Plath's poem is imagined face down in the sea a bit later, uh, and compared, as we have seen, to a great warrior of myth, Agamemnon. There is the inference of buried treasure, with those bees striped black and gold, of hieratic writing like runes. All of which is a rather like the drowned treasuries of Moria, where the Fellowship of the Ring discovered the rune-engraved tomb of Balin in some deep hall of his father's. And just as Plath's narrator has been living a lie, living in this durable whiteness in which nothing has withered or died, before they reach Moria, the characters in Tolkien's book are in a state of denial, convincing themselves that Balin may be found alive. It is only when they read the words on his tomb that Frodo says, He is dead then. I feared it was so. Gimli, the dwarf, says nothing but casts his hood over his face. Quite possibly wishful thinking on my part, but um, thought it was worth sharing that she was reading Lord of the Rings, during the composition of this poem at least. Just before we move on, I want to talk quickly about the actual gravestone. Here it's described as a speckled stone askew. In the original journal entry, the headstones are described as ugly crude block stones. By the time the scene is repeated in the bell jar several years later, the stone sounds a bit different. It is now mottled pink marble like tinned salmon. I think this evolution is really quite interesting as it shows Plath moving towards the casual gay verve she was trying to recover when she wrote Electra on Azalea Path. Following her rejection of the poem, she told herself a leaf out of Anne Sexton's book would do here. She has none of my clinches and an ease of phrase and honesty. Now, Plath was currently 
Attending a class of Robert Lowell's and Anne Sexton was one of her fellow students. If you want to hear more about that class, read um, Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz by Gail Crowther. You can also listen to my interview with Gail when we talk quite a bit about Plath and Sexton. Anyway, being too rhetorical was something that she came under criticism for in Lowell's classes. So it was probably something that she had a particular sore spot about when she wrote, around the time she wrote, Electra on Azalea Path. We don't know for sure, but it seems like Electra on Azalea Path may even have been uh, one of the poems that was read in Lowell's class and criticised. What seemed at the time to Plath forced and rhetorical in the poem becomes, in the Beljar version, arch and bleakly funny. The father's sea god muse of the Colossus era poems is now buried under a stone the colour of tinned fish. Now, from pictures of Otto Plath's gravestone taken by Gail Crowther in 2011, it certainly doesn't look salmon pink to me, although who knows, it might have weathered or wintered, strangely. Uh, in her account of that visit, Gail noticed that the churchyard was opened on the 1st of June 1940, meaning that it was only months into operation when Otto was enlisted. The newness of the graveyard must have been detectable when Plath visited in 1959 and uh, is referenced in the bell jar. The old part of the graveyard was all right, with its worn flat stones and lichen-bitten monuments, but I soon saw my father must be buried in the modern part with the dates in the 1940s. I, I wanted to ask you about the, the figure of Electra in, in the poem. Um, I know there's been quite a lot written of uh, Plath's readings of um, the play. What, what did the figure mean to her and, and why do you think she, she chose it for this poem? That's a great question. I was, I was just sort of Googling to refresh my memory on the Electra story itself and on the Electra complex. And when I read the poem, I, I don't necessarily think directly of uh, the play. I, I actually, I see more of the Electra complex being represented in it. And it's probably the case where I'm wrong that, that the play does certainly come into play. But I, I, I look at it as being just a, a result of, of Plas being in these sort of private therapy sessions with Dr. Boischer at the time, or certainly in the months prior to um, visiting her father's grave. And, and so I think that the sort of the Freudian or Jungian electrocomplex really sort of rang true to her, which, which inspired her to take that figure for the subject of her poem. Here then is stanza three of Electra on Azalea Path. In this charity ward, this poorhouse, where the dead crowd foot to foot, head to head, no flower breaks the soil. This is Azalea Path. A field of burdock opens to the south, six feet of yellow gravel cover you. The artificial red sage does not stir in the basket of plastic evergreens they put at the headstone next to yours nor does it rot, although the rains dissolve a bloody dye. The ersatz petals drip, and they drip red. So, in this charity ward, this poorhouse, where the dead crowd foot to foot, head to head. Again, this feeling of awful, incomprehensible, accumulated mass of dead. Um, imagined not really as dead at all, but as a lower class, members of a poorhouse or a charity ward. Poorhouse, the word poorhouse, comes from uh, Plath's journal entry about the visit to the graveyard. It was obviously an image that she liked or, and that was instantly inspired by that visit. 
No flower breaks the soil, this is azalea path. So nothing grows, we're beginning to see how artificial this graveyard seems. It's lifeless in more ways than it should be, more ways than one. Um, it's funny how Plath actually does break her line with, um, with a flower, despite saying no flower breaks the soil. We go from the two longish first lines with no full stop to breaks the soil. This is Azalea Path, those punchy, blunt sentences. Helen Vendler has written that the poem is full of unassimilated thematic and stylistic echoes of other poets, Yeats, Frost, Owen, and above all, Platt's teacher, Robert Lowell, as we can see from her adoption of Lowell's characteristic syntactic form, an enjambed, front-loaded sentence immediately brought up short by a subsequent curt sentence. So that's the, in this charity ward, this poor house where the dead crowd foot to foot, head to head, no flower breaks the soil. This is Azalea Path. Lowell also wrote angry, accusatory elegies like At the Indian Killer's Grave. And another influence that uh, Wendler doesn't mention there is Theodore Rethke, one of Plath's idols. Stephen Gould Axelrod describes Rethke's poem Lost Son as adumbrating this poem of Plath's. And indeed, it's full of similar imagery, worms, a slow drip over stones, father fear. But it's much blunter than Plath. The time order is going... Rethke says at one point, and I don't think, I don't think Plath would ever say anything as pedestrian as that or as, as just frank as that. When time is broken in a Plath poem, she lets us sense the disorder it creates. She doesn't just, you know, leave a note. Azalea Path, so we, we come to the obvious point here, Azalea Path is a sort of verbal echo of Aurelia Plath, Sylvia's mother. Such an uncanny verbal echo that it's caused absolute havoc trying to record this and say Path and not Plath and vice versa. Um, Plath repeatedly did this with names, uh, the, the names that sort of either visually or sonically resemble each other. So, for example, her pseudonym for the bell jar, Victoria Lucas, mirrors the name Virginia Woolf. When she says, this is Azalea Path, then we half hear, this is Aurelia Plath, almost as if she's saying, this is the fruit of, what, of my mother's repression of our grief the way in which she, is, she has controlled his memory or mythologized my father while he, in fact, rots in this cramped necropolis where no flower breaks the soil. In her journal entry after visiting her father's grave, Plath writes of her temptation to dig him up, to prove he existed and really was dead. How far gone would he be, she wonders morbidly. Clearly, her writer's relentless need to know... Um, and her desire to face up to things was at odds with her mother's tactic of shielding and trying to protect her children. What did they mean to you, the azalea flowers, asks Ted Hughes in his poem, The Child's Park. This poem recalls a time when Plath became murderously angry at the sight of two young girls pulling up rhododendron flowers. Plath herself wrote after the incident, I have a violence in me that is as hot as death blood. Azaleas are from the rhododendron family, and Hughes refers to their lurid colour when he describes Plath in her radioactive Eden. The mouth of the azalea he compares to the core of your inferno. Plath will have known that azaleas are toxic, and culturally they were sent to enemies as death threats. She would have also known from reading her father's work that they were a favourite of bees, along with burdock. A field of burdock opens to the south, Six feet of yellow gravel cover you. 
Burdock opens to the south, perhaps not just meaning is laid out to the south, but with bees in mind could suggest the opening of flowers. Six feet of yellow gravel, so more lurid colouring. We've got the yellow and the artificial red to come, increasing this sort of toxic palette of this scene. Six yellow feet, maybe a, a, a slightly cute reference to bees. Uh, might be a bit of a reach, that one. The artificial red sage does not stir. Red to go with the yellow. We got these, like I say, these toxic colours. It's almost like the colour of a, of a coral snake. Does not stir either by breeze or by bees. Uh, in, the in the basket of plastic evergreens they put at the headstone next to yours. So we've got this bleak artificiality, plastic evergreens, and they're not even on your grave, they're on the one next to you. Nor does it rot, although the rains dissolve a bloody dye, the ersatz petals drip, and they drip red. Nor does it rot. Here's another kind of stage where nothing withers or dies. There, there may even be a rhyme across the stanzas between stage and sage, as there is between... Um, guilt or anything at the end of that first stanza and then your bones and all in the second. Just similar formulations um, kind of echoing each other across stanzas. Now, the plastic petals dripping red, this for me is the peak of the poem. I love this image. It's like a tiny macabre miracle, like a weeping statue. Ronald Heyman has said that this simulation of blood is what reminds the poet of Sophocles' Electra, leading to the overt references to the tragedy in the following stanza. Jahan Ramazani sees the artificial flowers as savagely parodying the elegiac association of flowers with immortality and sympathy. When they can't be immortal because they're plastic, they've never lived, and they can't indicate nature's sympathy for the same reason, they're artificial. Uh, but I don't think that's the whole story. I don't think Plath is just savagely parodying the idea of an elegy. Uh, we're encouraged to assume in a lot of literary criticism that artificial is a synonym for bad, but an artist has a lot invested in the artificial. And I think these petals give a kind of physical form to the possibility of real meaning being born out of the consciously inauthentic. So it might remind Plath of Sophocles, and it might give way to these Electra references we have in the following stanza, but I think it also reminds her that even this fake petal can, by a trick of artifice, drip red, drip blood. The narrator is reaching towards a level of self-actualization by wearing a mask, by borrowing stilts, the way a child dresses up as a monster or a big bad wolf to get over their own fears. In the poem's theatricality, we see the narrator acting out. This is a Freudian idea that Ronald Heyman indicates Plath probably picked up from Boitcher. Acting out, the idea of leaning into the inauthentic in order to get to the authentic, lifting us into the next stanza and onto those borrowed stilts. But just before we get to them, I want to just check in on the rhyme scheme. Now, Helen Wendler has written a brilliant analysis of the rhyme in this, uh, in this poem and identifies an anomaly in stanza three, a sort of departure from the rhyme scheme. There are two lines that rhyme everywhere else in the, in the scheme, but not in this stanza. Wendler writes, the two lines which should rhyme with each other and don't are the D rhymes, lines five and nine. The end words that don't rhyme are you and die. When we ask ourselves the reason for this anomaly, we discover another constraint Plath has placed upon herself in composing the poem. Each stanza must contain, in some form, the word die. So in the first stanza we have the day you died, fairly obviously. In the second stanza, 
We have nobody died. In the third stanza, we have this bloody die that we've just talked about. In the fourth, we have the die in tragedy, D-Y. And in the fifth and final stanza, we have I brought my love to bear and then you died. Fendler writes, the observance of this rule doesn't explain why Plath didn't find a rhyme for die to put in the place of you, unless perhaps she wanted to alert her reader by the presence of the anomaly to the necessary presence of the root word die throughout. I, I love I love that uh, the line about borrowing the stilts. It's just it's it's such a wonderfully uh, Plathian kind of stagey line. Climbing it reminds me of the narrator in the Colossus climbing up the ladders. It seems like a exact yeah a continuation of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, you know, the Colossus was written just a few months later, so they they could be seen as companion pieces. Into the penultimate stanza, then stanza four. Another kind of redness bothers me. The day your slack sail drank my sister's breath, the flat sea purpled like that evil cloth my mother unrolled at your last homecoming. I borrow the stilts of an old tragedy. The truth is, one late October, at my birth cry, a scorpion stung its head. An ill-starred thing, my mother dreamed you face down in the sea. So, another kind of redness bothers me. Carrying on from the petals we talked about in the last stanza, it's not their redness, but another kind that is bothering the narrator. These next three lines are italicised and refer to the events of the Oristia. The day your slack sail drank my sister's breath, the flat sea purpled like that evil cloth my mother unrolled at your last homecoming. So according to the myth, depending on which version you're reading, Electra's father Agamemnon sacrificed his other daughter, Iphigenia, his eldest daughter, to appease the goddess Artemis. Clytemnestra, his wife, takes revenge by killing her husband, Agamemnon, on his return. She entangles him in a cloth and then stabs him to death. Electra, along with her brother Aristes, who gives his name to the, uh, to the whole cycle, the Aristia, in turn avenge their father by killing their mother, Clytemnestra. These three lines tell of Iphigenia's um, sacrifice, the day your slack sail drank my sister's breath, and then of um, Agamemnon's murder, the flat sea purple dyed that evil cloth my mother roll, unrolled at your last homecoming. J.M. Bremer has said that these three lines pretend to be a quotation. What this embedded Electra says in a cryptic way is essentially the same as what Plath says in this poem. Now that I see your grave, father, my thoughts go back to your death, to the circumstances surrounding it, and to the uncanny part played by my mother. So the different kind of redness appears to be the figurative blood of Iphigenia, purpling over the sailcloth whiteness of earlier. The first line elegantly compresses the mythical plot detail. Agamemnon sacrificed Iphigenia because his ship is denied from sailing. So uh, I love the way that Plath puts, the day your slack sail drank my sister's breath. Not only does that cover the sacrifice of Iphigenia, but it fills Agamemnon's sails and carries him on. Such elegant way of compressing that. Plath had studied classics at Cambridge two years earlier and wrote an essay that quoted T.S. Eliot reviewing Joyce's use of myth in Ulysses. Mr. Joyce, wrote Eliot, is pursuing a method which others must pursue after him. It is simply a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy which is contemporary history. Here, myth is neither an amusing dodge nor a scaffolding erected by the author. 
Holly Ranger has written of this essay that it provides an insight into some of the qualities that Plath thought identified an achieved classically elusive poem. A colloquial register, but not one unwittingly pathetic or light, an anti-nostalgic mood, absent of any obvious metaphors or unimaginative classicising, a moral expressive of a private inference implicitly relevant to the grander human experience, and a focus on an element or an image from the myth rather than a recontextualization of its narrative entire. Now, what's interesting about this is that Plath seems to not just recontextualize the myth, but also includes some of those critical approaches to myth. The narrator openly breaks that principle of Eliot's not to use myth as scaffolding when she says, I borrow the stilts of an old tragedy. As referenced earlier, the stilts work like a costume, like a way for the narrator to act out her mourning. She wants to stand out and above the masses of this cramped necropolis and place her dead father's memory on high. I think it might also carry a play on stilt, as in stilted language, as well as just the, uh, the stilts that might be included in costume. And now again, we have a break in the stanza where the, the figurative retelling of myth is followed by the truth. The truth is, the narrator says, one late October at my birth cry, a scorpion stung its head, an ill-starred thing. My mother dreamed you face down in the sea. This seems to reference Platt's real birth. She was born one late October, October the 27th, to be exact. And the line about a scorpion seems to refer to astronomy. Her zodiac sign would be Scorpio, making it literally an ill-starred thing. This habit of scorpions to sting their own heads is known as the scorpion suicide myth. People have noticed that if a scorpion is surrounded by fire, it will appear to kill itself by stinging its own head rather than burn. Unpoetically minded scientists have suggested that this is actually some kind of muscle reflex, that it's, uh, that it's inadvertent as opposed to, you know, a fully thought out suicide. So perhaps that could be the other kind of redness, flames closing in like it would on a scorpion. Either way, it reinforces the idea of symbiotic suicide. The father died and so the daughter goes into the dirt. This part was framed in the, in the first half of the stanza as my sister, the unnamed Iphigenia figure, but in the truth part it's more like the sister was a, a second self or part of herself. My mother dreamed you face down in the sea. So the parallels continue between the, the father of the poem and the mythical Agamemnon. Just as Agamemnon becomes adrift in the sea and needs to sacrifice a daughter, here the father is seen face down in the sea. He doesn't sacrifice a daughter, but he takes part of his uh, daughter into the dirt with him. He effectively kills part of his daughter. Earlier we talked about wintering, and in the Oresteia, the queen compares Agamemnon's return to the arrival of warmth after winter. But despite these connections to myth, the dream does actually have basis in reality too. It was a dream that Aurelia apparently related to Sylvia Plath, which Plath reimagined in her first diary entry after starting therapy with Dr. Boitcher. So that was December 1958. It almost reads like a short story, and it goes like this. It was her daughter's fault, partly. She had a dream her daughter was all gaudy, dressed about to go out and be a chorus girl, a prostitute too, probably. The husband, brought alive in a dream to relive the curse of his old angers, slammed out of the house in a rage that the daughter was going to be a chorus girl. The poor mother runs along the sand beach, her feet sinking in the sand of her life, her money bag open, her money and the coins falling into the sand, turning to sand. 
The father had driven in a fury to spite her off the road bridge and was floating dead, face down and bloated in the slosh of ocean water by the pillars of the country club. Lots of imagery there that has all kinds of resonances in Plath poetry. The dead father floating in the sea, we've seen that in Full Fathom 5. The pillars of the country club giving us that landscape of shattered myth the ruins that we see in the Colossus. What stands out to me as well is the the falling money, this sense of almost like fairy tale gold, the money that falls out of the mother's um, purse into the sand, turning to sand, almost like leprechaun gold or something, but also reminiscent of how the bees were described earlier on in the poem, striped black and gold like buried coin. Perhaps, but probably not a reference to the treasuries of the Mines of Moria. Perhaps a reference to her father's name, Otto, which means wealth. But perhaps more simply, a reference to something lost and precious that is unreachable or has turned to stone. What do you make of, of Plath's problem with, with purity? Yeah, I, I go back in this instance um, to the bell jar where she, you know, there's the Buddy Willard. Um, losing his virginity to the slutty waitress on the Cape and uh, pureness being a huge um, societal issue at the time. And it certainly plagued Plath because she wanted to experience, experiment with sexual activity, I guess. Um, and, but she, she was probably very nervous about the, the fact that she could easily get pregnant as a result of it, whereas um, it seemed to have less of an effect on how boys or young men were acting at the time. So I think that that, that could have some bearing on, on this uh, stain of divinity, as she puts it in the poem. Okay, we're on to the final stanza, stanza five. The stony actors poise and pause for breath. I brought my love to bear, and then you died. It was the gangrene ate you to the bone. My mother said you died like any man. How shall I age into that state of mind? I am the ghost of an infamous suicide, my own blue razor rusting in my throat. Oh, pardon the one who knocks for pardon at your gate, father, your hound bitch, daughter, friend. It was my love that did us both to death. Okay, the stony actors pause and pause for breath. It's almost like she's run out of script. The, uh, the mythical allegory can take her no further. Also, we're back to images, the uh, like the epic that she dreams image by image earlier on. There's no action, it's just stationary. Stony actors also sort of taking us back to the graveyard setting and also that stage where no one withers or dies as if they are made of stone. I brought my love to bear and then you died. Such a simple statement, it implies a causal link without quite saying one. I brought my love to bear and then you die. It's simply sequential, but it does um, put it in mind that it was her love that killed him, as she will say in the final line. It was the gangrene ate you to the bone, she says for now. Otto Plath did indeed get gangrene due to untreated diabetes. He feared, um, when he began to get ill, he feared a diagnosis of lung cancer and, and refused to see a doctor. Uh, if he had, he would have probably he would have saved his life. He had diabetes, which at that point was very treatable, um, but because he never went to see a doctor, it, it escalated and um, he ended up having to get his leg amputated due to gangrene. My mother said you died like any man. How shall I age into that state of mind? So the mother comes in for more criticism now. How can she be casual about your death? You died like any man. You can almost hear 
that's the kind of thing you would say, you died like a man, you died fighting, you died on your knees, that sort of hyperbole. But it also just sounds so um, banal, simply that he died like any man dies. How shall I age into that state of mind? The narrator is not prepared to accept that banal simplicity. How will I become offhand or casual about this traumatic event? Again, we return to the idea of the, the daughter not being able to understand the mother's take at all. Stephen Gould Axelrod has, has described the way in which Sylvia and Aurelia were at odds or, or just didn't see eye to eye. Aurelia, for instance, didn't let Plath or her brother Warren to Otto's funeral. Uh, Axelrod describes this as an automatic attempt to intellectualize crises and to repress negative feelings such as grief, fear, anger and shame. Now you can see the the good intentions there, but you can also see how later down the line that uh, that trauma comes to the surface. And I think that this this whole poem is sort of dramatizing that sudden dramatic confrontation with a repressed grief, repressed negative feeling. How shall I age into that state of mind? From this question onwards, J. M. Bremer has has described the rest of the poem as a kind of desperate prayer. I am the ghost of an infamous suicide, my own blue razor rusting in my throat. Tantalizing uh, and eerie line could well be referring to Plath's earlier suicide attempt in 1953. She'd often thought of that moment as a, as a moment when her, herself did split. You might remember in a birthday present, she says, I am only alive by accident. Yeah, this line has a similar ring. I am the ghost of an infamous suicide, almost like she is the ghost of herself in a strange way. Or she could be saying, I am, I am almost the, like the ghost of her father. The, again, this, this symbiotic suicidal relationship between father and daughter. Now, Otto didn't literally commit suicide, but his stubbornness about seeing a doctor made his death utterly preventable. He really, he really did bring it on, on himself. And in that sense, it was a kind of default suicide, which in its utter avoidability and its madness had a, a you know desperately traumatic effect on Sylvia. As Helen Fendler says, her father, she thought, had murdered her own will to live by caring too little for her to attempt to save his own life. My own blue razor rusting in my throat. It's as if we're hearing now from the from the self that truly is in the dirt. She is long dead, the, the razor's rusting in the throat. Um, the emphasis on my own, my own blue razor, may be a reference to Robert Lowell's poem, Waking in Blue, which is set in a house for the mentally ill and ends with a locked razor. Interestingly, when the scene gets put into the bell jar, the graveyard visit scene, it comes before Esther Greenwood's own suicide attempt, almost like it's a contributing factor. Whereas in reality, that suicide attempt or that the suicide attempt that that scene is based on in the bell jar had happened five, six years beforehand. Another way in which Plath builds these time loops where the the ghost she referred to is almost like a ghost of another fictional self, a parallel self that's done things in a slightly different order. Oh, pardon the one who knocks for pardon at your gate, father, your hound bitch daughter friend. It was my love that did us both to death. Your hound bitch daughter friend. So those multiple selves I've just talked about, that's almost like there's, you know, three of three different varieties or, or variations of Plath in different roles. Um, hound bitch daughter friend. Heather Clark has written that the phrase hound bitch was a huge leap. Plath had never used a curse word before in her poetry. 
And uh, funnily enough, years later, Ted Hughes translated the Ars Dyer and uses the phrase hound bitch. Um, his Cassandra calls Clytemnestra a hound bitch. So we've heard the mother being accused of, of murdering the father through the kind of uh, the, the proxy of Clytemnestra, the evoking the whole Electra myth. We've possibly heard an accusation levelled at the father and himself for dying. And now finally the narrator asks for pardon. So all, all three have almost sounded complicit at different times. The question uh, of the last line, of course, is how does love do them both to death? Uh, J.M. Bremer has asked, does the text imply that by the very act of lovingly visiting her father's grave, she has killed him? He has been alive until now in her infantile imagination. From now on, he will be irretrievably dead. I think that's I think that's right. I think that answers the question we started the podcast with, this curious lapse of time between Otto's death and the grave visit. I think what Plath has written about here has been the fact that by not visiting and by not confronting the the only physical remains she can really visit of her father, his gravestone, and having not gone to the funeral or seen any remains or casket or whatever, there is a level on which the death remains unreal in a durable whiteness, uh, a kind of living death on that uh, stage where nothing dies or withers. By taking the decision to go and visit her father's grave, she confronts it, confronts her loss, faces up to her grief, and it's a brave thing to do. It's choosing to do away with that dress of innocence, do away with that durable whiteness, accept the fact that from now on, her father will be irretrievably dead. What, what do you make of the differences between the 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 two depictions what stands out for you oh i, I it's it's kind of remarkable because in the journal she writes it's a clear blue day in winthrop and then in the novel the bell jar of course it's cloudy and it's raining which i'm, I'm sure is is uh done so on purpose to mirror her own sense of mourning for her father um the, the thing that i've always found most remarkable is that um the, the Plath family moved away from Winthrop in 1942. Plath made several visits to Winthrop over the, over the intervening years, but there is no general indication that she ever visited her father's grave until that day she wrote about going in March of 1959. And that really opened up the dam, as it were, on using this as a subject for a creative writing, uh, both the poetry and the prose like in the bell jar so the way that she um the way that she does change the something as simple as the the atmospheric conditions it's, it's deep and it's meaningful yeah it's it's really it's really eerie going through all three it's it's like three different three very subtly different people right you just you, you feel how long she's kind of lingered on 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 this scene and, and created it and recreated it right and and you know even in the poem um she says, this is Azalea Path, and it's a cramped necropolis. Uh, there's an artificial red, red sage of flowers or plastic evergreens. Nothing is real uh, in this poem. There's, it's just, and, and I don't know if that's a reflection of the living or it's a reflection of the dead, what is real and what isn't real. But in, you know, in the, the novel, she, she brings real flowers, and she is really there. And... I, you know, it, it's, it's just an interesting contrast. I mean, she uses some of the same sort of words about uh, the, the charity ward and poorhouse, and, and those carry from the journals to the poem to the novel. From, you know, the journal entry to the poem, 
to then the novel, she had a couple of years time pass. So, you know, she did write the poem pretty quickly after the, the experience of visiting and when she wrote it about in her journal. But then she was able, she, she returned, you know, the journal is prose and Belger is obviously prose. So she returned to a more prosaic narrative about the trip. And of course, she's writing about um, visiting her father's grave in the novel, it, it takes place obviously in the summer of 1953, but in, in real life, it was obviously she didn't go until six years later um, in 1959. So there's there's sort of time bending going on, and and so it's it, that's one of the things I find thoroughly fascinating with all of Plath's works, but but particularly with the Bell Jar, uh, in the way that she just is able to take these experiences that happened over a several year period and, and sort of deliberately uh, restructure them into, into this narrative that, that just flows beautifully and, and makes a great story. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Huge thank you to my guest, Peter K. Steinberg. Do remember to uh, check back in on the next episode. We'll be talking about The Swarm, a later poem uh, by Plath. Uh, and then there will also be an extended interview with Peter where you can hear about his upcoming work and his previous publications. We also talk about his website, which is linked below, and his history working with Plath. Hope you've enjoyed the episode, and until next time, happy reading. <laughs>